We are going through the first part of the book of Genesis in this series. We're calling it Gospel Foundations because underneath the good news of Jesus, there's a lot of realities about the way the world is and how it got to be the way it is. And the foundations of it, as we've been seeing and we'll see again today, are laid right here at the outset of our Bibles. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29 this morning. Genesis 9, starting in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we come to one of those stories that somehow never makes it into the children's storybook Bibles. Now, as a parent and as a pastor, I've read dozens of kids' Bible stories about Noah. It's one of their favorite stories. And not one of them has ever included the page with Noah drunk and naked. Not one. If you find it, please let me see it. So if you're here and you're new to the Bible, or maybe you've been around the Bible your whole life, and somehow you think that the Bible is boring and tame, you haven't read the real Bible. The Bible's not merely a collection of pious platitudes. It's filled with real people living in the real world with their real sin. And there are parts that can be earthy, raw, and sometimes even gritty. Parts like this, that's this morning, that definitely would not get a PG rating if it were put to film. But the Bible depicts life and death and sin in such realistic ways because it's a book about a real God who gives real help and real salvation to real sinners. Fairy tales can be tame and neat and safe for the whole family because they're make-believe. But the Bible is the real God revealing to us what is most real in the universe. This is a book with real answers for your real life. But still, we're left with the question, what do we do with a story like this? I mean, what do you make of this story? Well, what do we do with every passage we find in our Bible? We ask the question, why is this here? Why is this in my Bible. I mean, look down at your Bibles. 
if, he, if Moses were writing this, he could have gone very smoothly from 919, telling us who the sons of Noah are, and then jumped straight to chapter 10, saying, all right, now here's their genealogies. We would have been none the wiser. So it doesn't even feel like we need this, this story squeezed in here about Noah. But God knew that we did. So we approach these strange and uncomfortable stories with a sense of humility, asking the Lord to show us why he, as the divine author, knew this story needed to be here at this point. So why is it here? Still haven't answered that question. I think there are two main reasons. One of the reasons looks forward and the other looks back. So first, think with me about the one that looks forward. Remember that Genesis that we're looking at here is part of a five-volume work, five books called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Kind of five-part series that Moses writes. He wrote all five books, and he would have been writing them to a people, to the Israelites, who had been rescued from Egypt, wandered through the wilderness, and were now on the cusp of getting ready to enter the promised land. Right? That's when Moses finishes compiling, that's where we find the people, on the edge of the promised land, the land of Canaan. Hopefully some bells are going off, it's like, I've heard that name. And to take possession of the land of Canaan, they had to drive out the people of Canaan. All those people who had been descended from a man named Canaan, here in Genesis 9. And all throughout Genesis and the rest of this five-volume work called the Pentateuch, it's already been made clear that the Canaanites were a wicked and evil people. They show up 35 times in Genesis alone. And we find them in places like Genesis 13 and 14, where we see the Canaanite cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a lot of positive connotations with these cities. Then we hear about them again in Genesis 15, where God promises Abram that his descendants will take possession of this land once the iniquity of the Amorites, who are Canaanites, once their iniquity is complete, once they've done all the bad that God's going to allow them to do, he's like, then I'm going to drive them out and you're getting the land. We see them again, these Canaanites in Leviticus 18, where God tells the people, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. He says, don't be like them. Well, what are they like? Well, the whole rest of the chapter lays out laws against sexual perversions and immorality. God's saying, that's who the Canaanites are. You guys ought not be like that. So the Canaanites are consistently the bad guys. And here in Genesis 9, we're getting a history lesson that explains, how did that come about? Where did that story start? So this is the story of how the Canaanites became the enemies of Israel. That's a reason that looks forward. But I think there's another reason that looks back. Now, if you remember our last two sermons in Genesis, we've pointed out several ways that what happened in the flood was really God decreating the world in his judgment against sin. Sin had gotten so bad, he said, I'm going to undo this, decreate it, waters of the flood, come back, cover everything. And then he recreates the world for his people who he's saved by grace in the ark. So this new world, this was a fresh start, a clean slate, so to speak, right? God had blotted out every living thing on earth except those in the ark. So the wickedness and violence that had permeated the earth was washed away, at least seemingly. 
The old world was gone, and the world that greeted Noah when he strolled out of the ark was a new start. But the reason we have this story in Genesis 9 is to show us that while we might find a new start, it's still the same story we had before the flood. Now before, we pointed out lots of similarities to the creation story as the floodwaters receded. We talked about how you could see the waters going down, you could see the land appearing and dividing the waters, you could see the plants, and then you're told about the animals, and then you're told about these people, and then they're blessed, and you see all these similarities. We talked about how Noah becomes like a second Adam. Just like Adam, he was the one man from whom all humanity came. And like Adam and Eve, Noah and his sons were provided with food by God. Adam and Eve said, eat of any of the trees except one. To Noah and his sons, he says, now you can even eat animals too. Just like Adam and Eve, they were given a law regarding what they could not eat. Don't eat from that tree. Don't eat blood. And the similarities don't stop there. And I think it's in some of the similarities that we see why this passage is here. So this morning we're going to look at four ways. Four ways this passage shows us that while the world of Genesis 9 is a new start, it's the same story. And it's the same story not just for Noah, but for us today. So here's your four headers if you want to take notes. In verses 18 to 19, we're going to see the same mission. 20 to 21, the same sin. 22 to 23, the same strife. And in 24 to 27, the same lines of humanity. Okay? So this will hopefully all start to take shape as we walk through here. So look first to see how the people have been given the same mission. Now, remember back to Genesis 1. This was probably a couple months ago when we were there. But in Genesis 1, 27, we read about God's plan for humanity. Do you remember this? Here's what we read in Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That was God's plan for mankind. That was their marching orders in Genesis 1. To be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with image bearers. To cover the world with people who are made in God's image, who would reflect him to the world and would rule for him over the world. Okay? Fast forward to last time in Genesis 9-1, we saw that God renewed this blessing and mission, right? Look at 9-1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same thing, right? Well, what do we find in our passage today, starting in verse 18? The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So what was God's mission to people before the flood? Be fruitful and fill the earth. And what do we see happening from Noah's sons? From these people, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. They were doing it. They were being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with image bearers. The mission was happening. God was still about his same plan. He hadn't scrapped it with the flood. His plan to cover the earth with image bearers who would be a kingdom of priests in the world. 
And notice that just like before the flood, all humanity shares a common ancestry. Before the flood, everyone who lived could trace their roots back up to Adam and Eve. And that's still true. But now, humanity can also trace our common heritage back to Noah. So if you're thinking about doing one of those seen on TV things, getting a DNA test or Ancestry.com, I will save you some money. I can tell you who your great, 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 great grandfather was. He was a boat builder, goes by the name of Noah. Same as yours and yours and yours and yours and yours and mine. So just you're welcome. You can just take me out for lunch instead of spending that money on that. So we are all related and we're still doing this. We're still filling the earth at 7.9 billion and counting and still dispersing over the earth. So you can see the same story is still unfolding. Same mission. Okay, now the second thing we see in our passage is that while there might be a new start in the world, we still see the same sin in man. Look at verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now there's two main things I want to point out about Noah here. And to do that, I want to connect Noah to two other people. First, Noah here is again shown to be the second Adam. This is, this is important. Think about all these connections being made. In Genesis 2-7, God formed the man from the ground. Okay, in Hebrew is the phrase, Ha-Adama. That's important. Ha-Adama. He's Adam Ha-Adama. There's a play on words. Remember, he's from the dirt. He's a man from the ground. Now here, Noah begins to be a man of the ground, of the soil. It's again, Ha-Adama. So he's saying, just like Adam, Noah and Adam share this common task, both of being from the ground in a sense, and being sharing a common vocation. What do they do? They're workers of the ground. They're both farmers. They work and keep the soil. Not only that, both Adam and Noah sin, how? By wrongly partaking of fruit. Adam wrongly eats from the tree, and Noah wrongly drinks from the vine. And where does the sin of both men lead them? It leads both of them to finding themselves naked and ashamed why all these connections is it just interesting coincidence why does their sin feel so familiar because it's so similar man might have a new start but we still have the same sin and that's what we're meant to see that the flood didn't change our hearts 821 told us that the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth And as part of Noah's descendants, guess what? We've inherited his same sinful heart. We need God to give us clean hearts, right? So the first comparison we need to make is seeing that Noah is the second Adam. That's part of what we're seeing here. But the second comparison we should make is seeing that the Noah of chapter 9 is also the Noah of chapter 6. Do you remember how we were introduced to Noah back in chapter 6, verse 9. When Noah comes on the scene, we read this in 6, 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then we read and see that Noah did all that the Lord commanded him over the course of decades of building the ark. 
He was faithful and obedient. He trusted God. That's who Noah is. And that same Noah also sinned and made a fool of himself by getting drunk and passing out naked. What do we do with that? Like these two pictures of Noah are so jarringly different that it's hard to believe that the chapter 6 Noah could ever do what chapter 9 Noah does. You're like, that can't be the same guy. I know Noah in chapter 6, man. He's a righteous, good guy. There's no way he's ever doing that kind of thing. And I think that jarring inconsistency, that jarring dissonance between the two Noahs is what we're supposed to see. We're meant to see how susceptible we all are to sin. How prone to wonder our hearts are. That we're never above any sin. You're not invincible. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here's Noah. After his years and years and decades and centuries of righteousness and obedience, it wouldn't be surprising if Noah kind of let his guard down. Most likely he and those around him didn't think he was capable of doing what he did. Not him. This is Noah. A paragon of virtue. No way. Not that guy. I mean, maybe, maybe that guy or that guy, but Noah? Come on. But the question that we're forced to wrestle with as we read about Noah is, have you let your guard down? Have you excused your lack of vigilance against sin because of your long track record of obedience? When you look back over the course of your life, do you find that you used to zealously pursue holiness in your heart and in your life, but recently your zeal has been somewhat waning because, well, let's be honest, you're above that sin. That, you're beyond that in your Christian life. You would never do that. You would never go there. You would never see that, say that, think that. If that's where you find yourself this morning, brother or sister, take heed lest you fall. And if you don't take my word for it, take Noah's, the righteous, blameless man who found himself drunk, naked, and ashamed. And here's the last thing I want us to see on this point. What we realize when we see that the same sin still dwells in the heart of man is that we still need the same rescue. Noah knew all, Noah, more than anyone else maybe ever, knew all too well the judgment that sin deserves. This man lived through the flood. He never had to wonder, I wonder if God takes sin seriously. I wonder what it will get me if I'm a sinner. Like, he lived through it. So he sees this, and now he, he knows that he was rescued by God's ark of grace from the waters of the flood, but now he still needs rescue from the judgment his sins deserved. And guess what? So do we. We bear the family resemblance to both Adam and Noah and that our hearts are equally sinful. We disobey our maker and we abuse the kindness and generosity of our rescuer. All too often we find ourselves just like those two, exposed and ashamed. We need a greater rescue. And here's the good news. 
We have one. We have one, friends. In Jesus, we have a savior for those of us who blow it. We have a hope for failures. We have a gospel that offers forgiveness even to those whose bright and shiny resumes of obedience make their sin look even uglier. And in the gospel, Jesus doesn't just save us from our sin, he changes us. He gives us the clean hearts that we need. He gives us new hearts that no longer want to sin, but want to do what pleases the Lord. He doesn't just give us rules to obey, he gives us power to obey. He writes his law on our hearts and puts his spirit within us and causes us to walk in his ways. Friends, there is none of us that is so strong that we don't need to fear sin's power. But if we belong to Jesus, there is none of us so weak that we can't overcome sin's power. There's none of us so good that we don't need forgiveness. And if we go to Jesus, there is none of us so bad that we won't have it. So let's learn from Noah. We still face the same sin in our hearts. So let's take heed lest we fall. And when we do, let us remember that when we fall, we shall rise. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is the good news. But let's go back to some similarities here. Because the similarities to earlier in Genesis don't just stop with comparing Adam to Noah. There's a lot there, but that's not all there is. The story keeps matching up. Think with me. Do you remember what happened in Genesis 4 after Adam and Eve sin? You find Cain and Abel. You find brothers who act differently with one who acts righteously and pleases the Lord and one who doesn't. And out of those different actions, family strife springs up. Well, guess what we find next here in Genesis 9? Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Okay, so what do we find here? Well, we find brothers who respond very differently to this situation with their dad. Two who are righteous and one who is not. And that difference in their actions once again leads to family strife. Let's walk through it to try to understand what, what happens here. So first we have Ham, Noah's youngest son, we'll see. And he comes upon his father passed out and naked. Now the question that bothers a lot of people is what was it that he did so wrong? We'll see later a couple verses down. I'll say when, when Noah wakes up and he becomes aware of what his son had done. And so people, people lose their minds and let their imaginations run wild and want to invent all sorts of crazy and disgusting things Ham might have done in the tent. I mean, if you can imagine it, someone out there has written about it. Saying, oh, I think this is what happened. Well, but the text tells us what he did. We don't need to speculate. And it tells us by comparing what Ham did to what his brothers did. They're set up as contrast so that we see the difference. And when we hold up Ham's response next to his brothers, we see two key ways they're different. First, Ham saw the nakedness of his father. Right? 
But the brothers turned their face backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. First contrast set up is seeing versus not seeing. Looked at versus didn't look at. That's one difference. The second is how they then respond to their father's shameful state. Ham leaves him uncovered and goes to tell his brothers. He says, hey, did you guys see dad? Can you believe what he did? That's so messed up. The the man looks ridiculous. I mean, he made a fool of himself. He leaves him in his shame and then tells others of his shame. But Shem and Japheth respond very differently. Instead of leaving him in his shame and spreading it, they go to him in his shame and cover it. And each of the brothers' actions give us a glimpse of whose line they belong to. These lines we've been tracing all through Genesis, the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman, or the line of Cain or the line of Seth. Think about whose actions each of these brothers reflects. On one hand, Ham shows himself to be a seed of the serpent by how he acts. Because when Satan encounters us in our sin, how does he respond? He leaves us in our shame, telling us how awful we are and how badly we blew it. Telling us there's no way God really loves you after what you did. And then he tries to spread our shame by running to tell God. He is the accuser of the brethren. The prosecuting attorney trying to condemn us for our sins saying, look what they did, God. Did you see that? Can you believe them? Guilty. That's who Ham reminds us of. But Shem and Japheth, they resemble someone else. They resemble the God who, when he found Adam and Eve naked and ashamed, did what? He covered them. And when Shem and Japheth do the same, they also resemble Jesus, the ultimate seed of the woman, who comes to us in our sinful mess while we lay naked and ashamed with all of our guilt on full display, and he covers us. He covers all our shame and guilt with his righteousness. And more than that, he removes our shame. He takes it away and nails it to the cross. And he restores our honor and our dignity. He rehumanizes us. And when Shem and Japheth honor their father and cover his shame, they show themselves to be in the line of the seed of the woman. And how we respond to people in their sin and shame reveals which seed we resemble as well. When we see or hear about people in their sin and shame, are we more like Ham and simply gawk at their shame and gossip about it to others? It's just transfixed by like, wow, I can't believe they're that messed up or they did that. Hey, did you hear about what they did? Did you see that? Uh, Did you see that online when I posted it there? Are we quick to pass along info that exposes someone else's shame, whether in conversation or online? Or are we like Shem and Japheth? Do we move towards someone and try to cover their shame and restore their honor? Just to show you that, I think we're on the right track here. Listen to what Scripture has to say about how we respond to someone in their sin and shame. 
Proverbs 17, 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Is that happening in our text? 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. There's this repetition of cover over them, cover over them. And just to be clear that covering sin doesn't mean covering up sin, Listen to James 5.20. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Covering means more than covering up. It means bringing them back, restoring their honor, restoring their dignity, and doing whatever it takes to make their shame go away. God covered Adam and Eve's shame. Jesus covers our shame, and Shem and Japheth imitate them both by covering Noah's shame, while Ham looks at it and spreads it. And based on how they respond to the sin and shame of their father, the brothers show that there is a split in the family. Just like was true with Cain and Seth, these brothers may be one family biologically, but there are two different lines of humanity that will come from them. And that takes us to our next similarity. As we already alluded to, this episode shows us that even though there's a new start, there are still the same two family lines running through humanity. We've seen them as the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We've seen them as the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And now we see them again. Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So here, in response to how his sons acted, Noah issues both curse and blessing. First, he curses Canaan. Now, at this point, if you're reading carefully, you should stop and say, wait, what? Who was in the tent with Noah? It wasn't Canaan. It was Ham. So why is Canaan cursed instead of Ham? And to be totally transparent, we don't ultimately know. Here's some reasons it could be. It could be because back in chapter 9, verse 1, God had already blessed Ham as one of Noah's sons, and Noah therefore can't curse someone God has blessed. Could be. Or it could be a form of just punishment that we've seen all throughout Genesis, right? How over and over again we see that the punishment fits the crime. Well, what happened here? Ham, Noah's youngest son, brought problems to his family. So, in response, Noah asked God to bring problems on the youngest in Ham's family, Canaan. Could be. We don't know. But we've had hints that this was coming in the text. Did you, did you catch that as we read it? In both verse 18 and verse 22, Moses goes strangely out of his way to identify Ham as the father of Canaan. No other sons of Ham are mentioned, nor are any sons of Shem and Japheth mentioned. But every time he brings them up, he wants us to know, hey, 
Ham, he's the father of Canaan. Hey, Ham, father of Canaan. I, I want that to be clear so when I get down here to the curse, you say, ah, I see the connection. And remember that Moses is writing this to a people who are about to go to war with Canaanites. So he's helping them see how this wicked people got their start. So if I'm an Israelite reading this, I'd say, oh, that's why this people has always been so evil and immoral. This is the root of their evil line. I see that it goes all the way back. That's one thing that's happening here. But we also, we need to take a minute here to debunk some really bad Bible teaching. Over the years, many people have looked at this passage and called it the curse of Ham. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, but it's somewhat prevalent. And they then use this passage to try to explain and justify why slavery of Africans was okay. Their argument was that, well, Ham and his descendants were cursed to be servants. And then they would argue that, well, the word Ham, the name Ham, actually meant dark or black in Hebrew. Therefore, the dark-skinned people of Africa were the cursed descendants of Ham. And people then, and even now, this is out there, teach that that is what's happening here in Genesis 9. That God is cursing dark-skinned people of African descent to a life of inferiority and slavery. Friends, that is wicked and wrong and horrible exegesis of the Bible. And we need to know why it's wrong. I mean, it's in our Bibles. This is just bad Bible reading. First, there is no curse on Ham. Right? To say that this, oh, it all goes back to the curse of Ham. There's no such thing. The curse is on his son Canaan. And that's only one son, not all of them. If you look over to chapter 10, verse 6, you see that Ham had four sons. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And here's the crazy thing. The descendants from three of the four sons do actually end up settling in Africa. Cush became the peoples of Ethiopia and the surrounding areas. Egypt was obviously Egypt. And Put was the peoples of North Africa, namely the Libyans. But the only son of Ham who did not settle in Africa was Canaan. Guess where he lived? In the land of Canaan in the Middle East that we read about all throughout our Bibles. Where did he settle? Canaan. So it's also important to note the curse against Canaan wasn't about skin. It was about sin. The Canaanites showed throughout their history over and over that they were a people marked by idolatry and immorality. As one writer put it, they were cursed because they were evil-hearted, not because they were dark-skinned. Oh, and on top of that all, we now know through linguistics that the name Ham is not related to any Hebrew or similar language word meaning either dark or black. So this teaching about the so-called curse of Ham is and was nothing more than people twisting scripture to make it say what they wanted to say. We don't do that. So the curse of Ham is an unbiblical concept. Now back to the text. So it's the people of Canaan who are cursed, but who's blessed? Who's blessed? Well, we see that it's, it's Shem from whom come the Semitic people. You ever heard anti-Semite? Uh, Semitic 
it's from this Shem. It's from there, the line of Shem. These are the Jews. This is the promised line that extends down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David all the way to the Messiah, Jesus. But notice, it's not technically Shem who's blessed. Did you see that? It's Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Shem who's blessed. And Shem will be blessed because Yahweh is their God. God, there's probably a play on words here. The, the word Shem in Hebrew does mean, with certainty, name. So it's probably as though God is saying, my name is now with this people. I'm connecting this people and myself. I am their God. So they will be blessed because they are Yahweh's people. But then we see that Noah also blesses Japheth and prays that his descendants may dwell in the tents of Shem. So in other words, the blessing of Japheth is found in being brought into the blessing of Shem. Now we don't see anywhere in the Old Testament where this is fulfilled in the sense of the descendants living together in one unified settlement, anything like that. But guess who the descendants of Japheth are? They're the Gentiles. They're us. The Gentiles will find blessing by coming into the blessing of the Jews. To the Jews belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, the Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in Christ, we Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow members of the household of God. This is the mystery that was hidden for ages, but is now revealed in Jesus. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The descendants of Japheth you and me will dwell in the tents of Shem, the Jews, by faith in Jesus. That's the root. This is the good news that it just hinted at. Just a teaser here in Genesis 9. So, why is this crazy story about Noah in our Bibles? So that we see that even after the flood and a new start, we still find the same story. We have the same mission to fill the world with worshipers. We have the same sin that we need rescued from. We have the same division of the world into those who belong to the line of blessing and those who belong to the line of curse. And we have the same hope that the blessing will come from the God of Shem and the peoples of the world will be welcomed into that blessing through Jesus. The serpent crusher, the one who will give us relief from the curse, the one who will cover our shame will come through the line of Shem and in him all the nations of the world will be blessed. That is the hope, friends. And that's what Genesis 9, 18 to 29 is hinting at. Would you pray with me? Father, we delight in your word. Lord, what a gift, what a treasure. Oh, that you would open it more and more to us to plunder its riches to see what you have revealed to us. God, we thank you for your 
your unbelievable plan of redemption. That the more we learn of it, the more we marvel. We say, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Lord, we delight in your plan. And we delight that we are a part of it. That in Jesus, you've brought us near. That you have made us a part of the household. That we are no longer strangers and aliens. No longer do we have no hope. No longer are we without God. But now we have you. We have hope. We are a part of your people and your family. And it's only because of Jesus. And so we worship and exalt your son this morning as the only ground of our hope and the only ground of our confidence. And we thank you and we pray that you would help us to take heed against temptation and sin where we don't want to fall. Would you help us be vigilant to make no provision for the flesh, to give no opportunity to the devil, but to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So thank you for Jesus who makes that possible and for your spirit who works it in us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.